Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church. You can find more great content like this online at citylight.church. We're, uh, we're in Acts uh, for the last time tonight before we go into a couple of weeks before Christmas in like a little Advent short snappy series and then uh, January across City Light, at least North Adelaide and Glenelg is going to be looking at sort of some foundations to set us up for a a good 2019 uh, following Jesus, uh, and then we're back into Acts again in February next year. Um, should the Lord tarry, that is, he might return, and uh, we just get to, well, just like Acts will be distant memory, right? We'll just be loving Jesus full frontal forever. Um, but before that happens, uh, we're going to keep studying God's word and keeping our eyes fixed on the on Jesus. So I'm going to read the word tonight uh, before I open it up and speak about it, and it's a relatively long passage. It starts at chapter 4. And verse 5, if you're old school and you're using one of the black Bibles around us, it's on page uh, 1696, 1696, um, or uh, bring it up on your gadget, and uh, we'll go from there. Uh, Here's what God has to say to us uh, through his word, Acts chapter 4, beginning at verse 5. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, If we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realised they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. I mean, everybody living in Jerusalem knows they've done an outstanding miracle and we can't deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them back in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help but help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. On their release... Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? 
The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you and praise you for this word tonight that is before us. We praise you and thank you for bringing us here tonight. And Father, we pray that by your spirit, through your word, tonight, Father, we want to see Jesus. And Father, by your spirit, through your word, we pray that we would hear Jesus. And Father, by your spirit and through your word, we pray that we would love Jesus. And Father, for those of us here tonight who haven't yet come to Jesus with repentance and faith, grant that tonight. For those of us here tonight, give us a renewed sense of boldness, courage, and a commitment to call on your name. And Lord, we ask this in your, your son's precious name. Amen. Amen. If you have been here over the past couple of weeks or so, we've been sort of hanging out in Acts chapter 3 and chapter 4. And the focus in these chapters is very much on the name of Jesus the name of Jesus. This paralyzed man, uh, he was born lame. He was, he's, you know, we're told he's about 40 years old. He's healed in the name of Jesus. And the emphasis on the name of Jesus continues today through our passage. Now, there's nothing magical about a name, right? There's nothing magical about the name. But the name of Jesus represents him. Uh, it represents Jesus' rule. It represents Jesus' presence. It represents Jesus' power. So in one sense, right, it's like an ambassador. An ambassador, wherever they are in the world, can operate in the name of their sovereign or their president or their leader. So let's say, up on the screen, here you go. If you were the ambassador of Australia, that's where you'd hang out if you were in London, right? If you were the ambassador to Britain, that's kind of where you'd, you'd kind of stay and, and hang out. Let's say you arrive in London and you're the ambassador and you, you say... I want to get a meeting with the Queen and the Prime Minister of Great Britain, and I'm here in the name of Scott Morrison. I'm the ambassador for his, the people of Australia. Likely thing is, you're going to get a meeting, right? You might not get a meeting straight away, but eventually you'll get a meeting with the Queen and with the PM, because you're there in ScoMo's name, yeah? You are representing the people that he leads, you and me, and so you're probably going to get some access. You get the idea. But I'm, I'm not sure it would always work out perfectly, right? I'm thinking if you turned up in rural Nigeria and you were facing some Islamic terrorist and you said, I'm here today to meet with you in the name of ScoMo, they're probably going to look at you and, well, I don't know what's going to happen to you at that point, right? You're probably not going to get access. You'll, they'll at least laugh at you. It doesn't always work. But where there is authority to speak in the name of a monarch or a sovereign, that's impressive. That carries influence. And that's really what we're thinking about tonight. The name of Jesus is the representation of his rule here on earth. We saw this a couple of weeks ago in chapter 3. Uh, the Apostle Peter said to this layman, chapter 3, verse 6, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And what happened? He did. Jumping and leaping and praising 
God. There's nothing magical about this name, and yet it does represent that Jesus does rule on this earth. The name of Jesus may not get you access to see the Queen or visit the PM in London, but it can save you for eternity if you trust in this name. Well, Peter and John, right? Chapter 4, verse 5. They've been arrested for doing this kind thing. They're thrown in the slammer. They're in jail. They're about to stand trial. And emphasised in chapter 4, verses 5, 6, and 7 is the nature of this well, pretty intimidating bunch that's right in front of them. Now have a look at Acts chapter 4, verse 5. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem, the rulers, they were like the retired kind of priests of the day. The elders, they're the ones that rule in the Sanhedrin, the teachers of the law. Impressive guys. Here are the elite. Now, here's like the, the House of Reps, the Senate, and a few high court judges kind of thrown into the mix, you know. You're standing in front of a fairly intimidating bunch. It's also a little corrupt. This is not a slick, beautiful bunch of people. They are kind of a corrupt bunch of people. If you know your history, uh, in verse 6, Annas, the high priest, was there. He's actually not the high priest. Uh, back in AD 15, the Romans kind of got rid of him, but the people still thought Annas was the high priest. Nepotism, right, was rife. When he stopped being the priest, he got his five sons together and said, you guys, you can be the priest now. Caiaphas, who we read of there as well, that's Annas's uh, son-in-law. He married his daughter. It's a pretty corrupt little gang, right? But here you've got the good and the great of society, and these are the people that Peter and John are standing up in front of. These little group of people, all they want to do is maintain the status quo. They don't want anyone to rock their world. And Peter and John, right, they're standing in front of this group of people, and they'd know that that's the same crew that, well, had the phony sham trial for Jesus and had Jesus killed. It's a tad imposing as well as they come before these guys. But the question put to them comes in verse 7. Um, after they had Peter and John stand before them, they began to question them. By what power or in what name have you done this? And Peter's going to tell them. Three things Peter is going to talk to them about as he stands before them. He'll talk about these three things. Uh, Peter talks about salvation in the name of Jesus that you can have boldness in the name of Jesus and you can call upon the name of Jesus. Salvation in the name, boldness in the name, and you can call upon the name. So firstly, salvation in the name. Have a look at verse 8. It's coming up. Here we go. Peter, filled with the Spirit, said to them, pause just for a minute, right? All the way through the book of Acts, right, we see the Spirit at work. When someone comes to know Jesus, they are baptised once and for all, in the Holy Spirit. And yet, as we see through the book of Acts, there can be ongoing or recurrent infillings of the Holy Spirit for particular reasons. Namely, when someone in the book of Acts is filled with the Spirit, it's to enable them to speak boldly about Christ. That's what happens in Acts. And so Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, "'Rulers of the people and elders,' If we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man, by what means he was healed? There's like a little bit of sarcasm going on here, I reckon, for Peter. You know, so like you've brought us in today and you're putting us on trial for being kind? Like, are you for real? Anyway, if we're being on trial for being kind, verse 10, let it be known to all of you 
And to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you healthy. Jesus did this, Peter says. And you know, you're the ones who killed him. You know the one that you put on a cross and you killed? Yeah, he's the one you killed, but guess what, fellas? He's alive. He's alive again. He didn't stay dead. That's the one. He's back. No, you haven't gotten rid of him. Yep, that one, Jesus. Oh, and let me just make this really clear to you, says Peter. You're doing exactly what the Old Testament predicted you would do. So Peter quotes Psalm 118 in verse 11. This Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the corner stone. I think it's really cool, hey? Like, um, God is always in control. Um, and for Advent this year, um, I'm helping us as a family kind of prepare well for Christmas. And so we're using the names of Jesus kind of little series that is put out by a woman who works and, and lives in uh, Sydney. And today, day number nine of Advent, I flicked it over and what's the name? Cornerstone. I had no idea. But here is Peter, like, talking about Jesus being the cornerstone. In an ancient building, the, the cornerstone was the big stone, right? The big one. Uh, so if you're building a temple, for example, you'd, you'd place the cornerstone first and everything else that you're building around it would align with that cornerstone. It's the biggest one and it aligns the rest of the building. It's also the one that bears the most weight in the building. That one, says Peter. That's the one you've rejected. But guess what? He's the one that the living God always intended to build his kingdom upon. So two uneducated fishermen addressing the religious elite, saying that in the realm of religion, in the realm of theology, you could not have made a bigger mistake. This is what you were meant to do, but you've got it disastrously wrong. And of course, verse 12 is the real kicker to this opening part of Peter's address. He says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. Two negatives to really drive home Peter's point. No other name, no one else. Now, now this verse highlights a bunch of things. It it's highlights some really important theology, but it also raises objections among people, I'm sure people that you know, the exclusivity of Jesus, that everyone needs to come to Jesus to be saved. Let me deal with a bit of theology first, and then um, we'll deal with a couple of the objections. The theology, I think it's what Luke really stresses, it's what he wants us to take away. You see, what Luke does, he moves from we've been, with, like Peter, well, Peter does, but Luke captures this for us. Luke moves from we've healed one man of being lame since birth to here is a picture of the whole of salvation. It's, a, it's quite a leap, isn't it? One guy healed of being lame from birth to then sort of the whole world. How can the whole world be saved? Peter moves from the particular to this like massive how we can be saved. Now, we miss this, right, in, often in our English translations. I don't want to get all geeky and greeky for no reason, right? But verse 9, if you see this on the screen, um, verse 9, here we go, um, Peter says, if we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man by what means he was healed, if you go then down to Acts chapter 4, verse 12, this key verse by which we must be saved, it's the same verb in the original language. 
So sozo, there you go, you can drop that at a dinner party coming up this week, right? Hey, there's this cool word called sozo. But sozo in the original language can be translated either healed or saved. Um, the Greeks, right, had this holistic view that it wasn't just, you know, my physical nature was separate from my kind of soul or my spiritual reality. It was the same. And so do you see what's going on? That the healed man, the lame guy who was healed after 40 years of not being able to walk, is a picture of what it means for anyone to be saved, says Peter. The physical healing in Jesus' name indicates that Jesus can heal spiritually and eternally. This temporal fix points towards the restoration of all things when Jesus returns to another world where there's no sickness, no disability, no pain and no death, to a perfect new creation. This one man's healing is a hint of what is to come. The world, this next world, the new creation breaking into our present, a glimpse of the kingdom. So Peter takes the theology, right, of the healing of one man, being saved, being healed, and says, do you see what this means for the future? That's Peter's big theological point. But verse 12, right, um, is not always going to be the most popular verse to drop at Christmas in Adelaide 2018. That there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. The exclusivity of the gospel, the exclusivity of the Christian claim that it's only through Jesus that you can be saved from your sin and have eternal life, people don't like that very much. I think, did I share the other day, I shared this with my barber, he had a knife to my throat, he didn't, we didn't do anything right, but he didn't like it very much. Um, But there's heaps of objections, right, to this idea of Jesus being the only way to God. One of them, here's a few, I'll just give you a few. This might help you as you kind of hand out Christmas Day flyers to people around the place and lead up to Christmas where hopefully you'll have opportunities to talk about Jesus. You know, there's that classic objection, right? Don't all religions kind of end up in the same place? Uh, Aren't all religions essentially the same? You know, people go, right, that religions, whatever it might be, really it comes down to just sort of teaching good ways to live, morals and things like that about how life ought to be lived. And people dismiss it on that grounds. Well, that's, you know, they're all the same. They just teach the same thing. If you look, interestingly, if you look at like our secular world, secular humanism, secular humanism is pretty much the same. It's just teaching us how to kind of live a moral life. And so kind of, I think we're just going to rule out that they all teach the same thing as if it's all about morals, right? Because like Christianity is an exclusive, it's, a, it's different to all the other world religions. For example, if you just take Christianity and Islam, the starting point of Christianity is that the word of God tells us that God, the living God, the one who made you and me, is love. That the central attribute of God who created everything and is in everything and make everything, he's love. I don't know if you know this, but, well, no other religion says that. No other world religion says that the heart of the being at the heart of their belief is love. No other religion. If you said Allah is love to a Muslim, they would go, no, we don't read that in the Quran. You know, and the Christian gospel, the God of the Bible, he's not only a God of love, he actually is a God who desires relationship. He wants a relationship with that which he has made. And yet if you say that to 
about Allah in Islam, they will go, no, 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 Allah is distant, he's aloof, not interested in relationship. And then if you go Christianity one further, God is love, he desires relationship, and that love and that desire for relationship propelled him, compelled him to come into the world in the person of his son to, to not just show us how to live, but to lay down his life for sinners like you and me and to rise triumphantly from the grave. Like you say that to a person from Islam and they will go, that's blasphemy. You're telling me that God came into the world and, and, and lived a human life? It's just anathema to Muslims. I was once having a debate with someone at a university. I'd given a talk and then there was this debate happening and I was, basically the, the question time after it turned into a conversation between me and the head of the Islamic society on campus and everyone else around is going, oh my gosh, this is terrifying, what's gonna happen? Like, this is awkward. But it was one of the most fruitful conversations I'd had. Like I shared about the uniqueness of Jesus. And as we're talking, this guy said, so Simon, you're telling me that God, in the person of his son, came into the world, and you're telling me that God had to go to the toilet? You're telling me that God ate food? You're telling me that God had to sleep? I'm like, yep. And you know what? The interesting thing about that whole time was that I didn't actually have to highlight the fact that Islam and Christianity were different. It just, it just came out. All religions aren't the same. It's a lazy objection. Second objection is people might say, well, you know, like I've explored some of these, these, these religious things and, you know, like I've, I looked at Hinduism, that's just a bunch of myths and, and basically all religions are myths, right? It's just a bunch of myths. That's also a really lazy objection, right? Um, who else? Who loves Netflix? Come on, come on! I love Netflix. Anyone watch Vikings on Netflix? Yes. As your pastor, again, I should say, don't watch that. It's not great for your spiritual life. But I was chatting to someone the other day who also loves Vikings, and and this person's going, oh, you know, you know, Vikings. It's all about the god Odin, you know, the god that the Vikings kind of believe was real and lots of stuff. And and uh, this person said to me, oh, you know, and like I found out right that the myth, that the Odin, like the Odin story, it's mythological. It's not true. And therefore, like I'm I'm pretty sure that Christianity is a myth as well, Simon. And I went, are you for real? I said. Because like, apparently Odin was hung on a tree and he died on a tree and so this person equated that, well, Jesus hung on a tree, therefore that was a myth and so Jesus is a myth. I went, is your brain engaged right now? I mean, Odin, right, he hung on a tree. Can you prove that to me? No, there's nothing to say that Odin ever hung on a tree. Can you prove to me that Jesus hung on a tree? Yeah, I can. We've got historical accounts both from within the scriptures and also Josephus and other men and women who, who recorded the events of Jesus' death, AD 33, on a hill outside Jerusalem. People witnessed it. Again, are all religions a myth? No, that's lazy. It's another one, sorry, I could go on all night, right? But some people say, oh, it's arrogant, arrogant, Simon, to say that there's only one way to God and that person is Jesus. I'm like, it's not arrogant if it's true. You know what I mean? Like, there's no end, like, truth can't be endlessly elastic, right? You can just stretch it and stretch it and make it say whatever you want. There's, there's got to be truth. I want to say to the person who says it's arrogant to say that Jesus anyway, have you engaged with the gospel? Have you asked questions of Jesus? Because in there you'll find truth. And then, this is kind of coming back to my story about my barber. Um, his friend 
is a pastor as well. I hope this pastor friend of his doesn't hear what I'm saying, but um, you know, his pastor friend goes, oh, I love my pastor friend because he doesn't, he doesn't push anything on me. He doesn't make me you know, kind of convert to what he believes. He said, you're a bit like that, aren't you too, Simon? I said, no. No, I'm not. Can I push something on you? That's what I said to him. And he goes, oh. You know, I think he was then getting the clippers out as quick as he could to kind of cut my hair. Um, you know, like... I wasn't pushing stuff on him in a way that was really arrogant or unhelpful or un- not winsome. I was just wanting to share Jesus with him. Um, we, the Bible pushes me to see that people need to trust in Jesus for their salvation. Um, and so whether it's my barber or a Buddhist friend or whoever, I want them to know Jesus, as I'm sure most of us here do. But there's some objections. But here is Peter, right? Here is Peter and John uh, before a very powerful and intimidating group of people. They're filled with the Spirit, and they say, there is only one name by which you must be saved from your sins. The person who can save you for eternity is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He's not a myth, a historical figure, the most important figure in world History. Salvation is in his name alone. Then they show boldness, verse 13 through to 21. Boldness in his name. It's just terrific, this little bit, right? Actually, there's hostility that comes first. A bit of hostility. Take a look with me, verse 13. It should be on the screen. Uh, when they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, remember these guys were fishermen? Uh, they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. And since they saw the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in opposition. Wouldn't you love to have been there? Like, oh dear, we're in trouble. We're a bit stuffed. Verse 15. After they ordered them to leave the Sanhedrin, they conferred among themselves, saying, what are we going to do with these men? Like, for an obvious sign has been done through them, clear to everyone living in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that this does not spread any further among the people, let's threaten them against speaking to anyone in this name Again, do you, you realise they actually these guys aren't at all interested in the truth? They don't care about the truth. All they want to do is maintain their position. And they don't want the people to be unsettled. So verse 18, they called for them, Peter and John came back in and ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. No interest in what's true. Now I read this in a commentary this week, a very striking thing to say and somewhat pointed Um, for much of what goes on perhaps in our city. Commentator says this, you can hold the highest religious office in the land, enhanced by centuries of tradition, surrounded by all forms of liturgy and ritual, and you can profess faith in the one true God and still not be saved. You can still not know Jesus. It's pointed. You know, you can have it all, religiously speaking. You can have all the ritual and the tradition, but not know Jesus. You can come to church for year after year after year and still not know Jesus. You know, they're no longer interested, you know, these people and and others, these people right in front of us tonight in the text. They're not interested in finding the truth. So there's hostility, there's intimidation. But Peter and John, right, I love these guys. They, they're not having anything to do with it, right? They are bold. Have a look with me at verse 19 and following. Peter and John answered them, Whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide, for we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. It's so terrific, eh? The boldness. There they are, and they don't say to Annas and Caiaphas and the other guys and 
They don't say, okay, 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 we, we get what you're saying, we've maybe gone a bit too hard, what's safe for us to say? Like, what can we do? You know, like, how can we kind of make a deal? They don't say that. You know, they don't say, what's going to work right now, downtown Jerusalem, you know, around this time? They don't say that. They realise that in God's eyes, the right thing to do is just to keep on speaking. Further threats come, verse 21. After threatening them further, they release them. They found no way to punish them because the people were all giving glory to God over what had been done. For this sign of healing had been performed on a man over 40 years old. You know, here you have the elite with all the powerful positions, but they have no real power. That slipped away from them because they've, well, because the power is in the name of Jesus. For Peter and John, a belief, it's, it's wonderful, right? For Peter and John, a belief in the risen Lord Jesus Christ and that he is sovereign, that he reigns over the world, just liberates them. It's fantastically liberating and empowering for them to just kind of speak the word of God. You know, their kind of speaking, their testifying to Jesus reminds me of one of my favourite old fathers from church history, John Chrysostom. I don't know if you've heard, anyone heard of John Chrysostom? Hey, there we go, a few sheepish hands, there we go. Um, you know, uh, he, was a, he was a guy who loved Jesus, um, who spoke up boldly about Jesus. And um, at one time in the 4th century AD, I think there's a picture of him. There we go, that's what photos used to look like in the 4th century of God. That's John Chrysostom on the right-hand side. And this guy on the left is Emperor Arcadius, um, who was the Roman emperor of the time, like massively powerful guy. And here's John Chrysostom looking all pious and holy on the right. But anyway, Chrysostom was well known for kind of challenging um, Emperor Arcadius's kind of violent regime and also his multiple affairs. That's what kind of got him into hot water. And so Arcadius one day said, right, we've got to stop this guy. To shut this guy down and stop him from banging on about Jesus and me. So Chrysostom summoned, uh, sorry, Emperor Arcadius summoned Chrysostom in. This is big. I mean, what would you do, right, if you were in that situation? You've been dragged in before the most powerful person in the world at that time. Let me just take you through this little exchange that Arcadius and Chrysostom had um, at this moment. Emperor Arcadius says to Chrysostom, unless you stop your speaking, we will banish you. Chrysostom, you cannot banish me. The world belongs to God, my father. Arcadius, we will execute you. You cannot, says Chrysostom, for my life is in Jesus Christ. I will live forever. Arcadius, we will dispossess you of all your estates. Chrysostom, you cannot. I don't own any. All my treasure is in heaven. Arcadius, well, we'll put you in solitary confinement and leave you miserable. Chrysostom, you cannot. For I have a divine friend from whom you can never separate me. Emperor, I defy you. There is nothing you can do to hurt me. Isn't that awesome? I mean, what do you do with a man who has boldness like that? Well, verse 21, they let them go. You've got no hold on these men. There is boldness, right, that comes from knowing that you belong, that you belong to this powerful name of Jesus who is risen from the grave and the death-conquering there's boldness in the name. So there's salvation in the name. They proclaim the name. There's boldness in the name. And finally, they're released and they return to the people and they call upon the name. It's my last of three points tonight. Verse 23, they call upon the name. They pray. After they were released, uh, they went to their own people and reported everything the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together to God and said, 
Master, you are the one who made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and everything in them. You said through the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of our father David, your servant. Here it comes. Why do the Gentiles rage and peoples plot futile things? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers assemble together against the Lord and against his Messiah. For in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. They're released, they go back to their people, and they pray. And you notice the first thing they do before they ask for anything from the hand of the good and gracious God that they love, they fill their minds with who this God is. You know, who is he? Verse 24, the sovereign Lord. He's the one who created all things. He's the one who speaks. He's the one who predicted all these things would happen years ago. As they fill their minds with God, they also fill their minds and hearts with his word. They remind themselves that nothing happens outside of God's plan or his will. Even the death of Jesus, God's own son, was within God's will. They bring to mind, they bring to heart, to whom they're praying. And then you get the requests. Have a look, verse 29. Three little requests. And now, Lord, first request, consider their threats and grant that your servants request too, that we may speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand for, request three, healing and signs and wonders as they're performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Three requests. Consider their threats. Second request, may we speak your word with boldness. The third one, produce some signs and wonders and then healing to go along with our message. And you know what? When you read the book of Acts, this prayer pretty much gets answered straight away. It's amazing. Have a look at verse 31. When they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to, to speak the word of God boldly. You know, can you perform signs and wonders if you go along to chapter 5, verse 12? I think I've got it on the screen. Is it there? Maybe not. Anyway, it's not there. Signs and wonders accompany the witness and the testimony of the apostles. But what we see here amongst this ordinary bunch of men and women in downtown Jerusalem in the first century is a group of people confidently praying. It's a bunch of people who know that Jesus is Lord and that Jesus is unstoppable. They can appeal to him because Jesus is sovereignly superintending his mission. And again, what do they pray for? You know, they don't pray, I'm really challenged by this, I was challenged by this this week. They don't pray for, wow, you know, Lord, it's, it's been quite a day, we've, we've been in prison, how about a rest day tomorrow? Like just to just back off a bit, just let us have a chill out. You know, go to the cafe, have some, you know, deconstructed long blacks and, you know, a bacon and egg roll. I don't know, just give us a rest day. They don't pray that. They don't pray for hipster coffees. They don't pray for easier lives. They pray that lives will be changed. They don't pray, Lord, it's been a bit rough. We'd prefer it. We don't want another night in prison. Can you protect us? They just pray for greater boldness. And I was thinking about this week, right? I've been reading, I read some time ago, and um, I've been caused to kind of reflect back a bit through Tim Keller's book on prayer. And I reckon Paul kind of got this notion about, you know, not praying so much about give me a day off or change my circumstances, but just give me more boldness. Tim Keller writes this. It's remarkable 
that in all of his writings, Paul's prayers for his, his friends contain no appeals for a change in their circumstances. I mean, I haven't done the Bible study right to check that that statement's true. I think Tim's a pretty good guy. Like, I'll run with him. Um, he can preach okay. Like, I don't know. Like, but you know what I mean? Like, not a change in circumstance, just more boldness. You know, I like reading. I've just finished reading um, the biography of the Scottish reformer, John Knox. Here's a picture of him. That's what photographs look like again. There he is. Scottish reformer. Um, I, think he, I think he was a big guy. I think he would have been really intimidating to meet in person. Um, I wouldn't agree with everything. We wouldn't, you know, like mesh perfectly. But this was a man on fire for Jesus. Um, so much so that Mary, Queen of Scots, kind of got wind of him and didn't like him very much. And on five occasions got Knox to come before her to kind of have a little exchange, a little word. Five times he had to come before Mary, Queen of Scots. Five times she said, stop preaching. Five times Knox said, no. He said this, I am not the master of myself. I must obey him who commands me to speak plainly. I do not flatter any flesh upon the face of the earth. Bam. Five times summoned before Mary and all her advisors and five times he walked away continuing to preach the good news. Mary, get this, Mary is reported to have said this, quote, I am more afraid of the prayers of John Knox than an army of 10,000 men. If he prays with the boldness that he speaks to me, I find that terrifying. And then just scooting forward another couple of hundred or 300 years to a guy named Samuel Chadwick. Um, You might have heard of this quote before from him. He writes this about you and me. If you're a Christian and you pray, Satan dreads nothing but prayer. His one concern is to keep the saints, that's just another word for Christians, follower of Jesus, his one concern is to keep the saints from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, nothing from prayerless work, nothing from prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, he mocks our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. See here the first Christians calling on the name of Jesus in prayer. As we close, what do we do with this Jesus? What do we do with this Jesus? How do we respond to his name? I guess if we're Christians, if you're tonight and you call yourself a Christian, you love Jesus, you've come to know him, you've repented, you've believed on him. If you're a Christian, then will you speak boldly? Will you speak boldly? Will you go on speaking boldly if that how, is how God is using you right now? And I, th- I think that's the implication. It's what's modelled for us here. You know, if we find that hard, then I want to encourage you to say, like, Lord, help me to speak boldly about your son. I've actually I've tried that out over the last couple of weeks. Um, I'm usually a pretty confident fella at sharing Jesus, but I feel like this year stuff's gone on in my life where I've kind of been a bit battered and bruised and I've kind of at times hidden under a rock, but over the last couple of weeks I've just been asking, Lord, give me boldness. Help me to preach and speak about your son, not just up here in front, but just wherever I am. And the scary thing is God has been answering that prayer. I feel like everywhere I go I'm just getting opportunities to share Jesus with people. The other day I was just... 
over the other side there on, is it Jeffcott Street, that one down there? Is that right? I don't know. At a cafe. I was there with um, Fletcher, my little guy, he's one. And there was a guy sitting next to me, and it's really cool. Like, having little babies like that is like having a dog. Like, people go, oh, isn't he cute? He's lovely. Oh, look at his beautiful eyes. And like, yes, like me, he's my son, you know. Anyway, this guy then, I said to him, well, what are you, you, know, what are you up to today? And he goes, this sounds really cheesy, but it happened. Like, I said, he goes, I said, what are you up to today? And he goes, I'm just waiting for a phone call. I'm looking for some good news. And I said, I, like, I kid you not, I've been praying for boldness. And I said, I've got some for you. And he goes, what do you mean? I said, I want to tell you about Jesus. And so we just chatted about Jesus for like the next 15 minutes. And by the grace of God, Fletcher just sat there really quietly. <laughs> I didn't get to lead him to Christ, but I, you know, it was one of those moments where he got to plant a seed, right? And who knows, he might just live across the road, get one of these, where are they? One of these in his letterbox. We might see him on Christmas Day. I don't know, well, next year. But um, I've been praying. It's a dangerous prayer to pray, by the way. Um, but I, I think it's... The, the most dangerous prayers we pray, right, are the prayers that are chasing after God's own heart. You know, when that happens, he'll just go, yep, I like that. Here we go. Um, if you're a Christian, will you speak boldly? If you're a Christian, will you keep on speaking boldly? You know, and will you pray? You know, in the 21st century here in Adelaide, I'm not expecting that when we pray like the first century Christians did that we can expect this Presbyterian church to shake but I reckon what we want to see is that the Lord gives us boldness to speak of his name and we'd see lives shaked and quaked by the good news of Jesus and his spirit. And no matter where you stand tonight with Jesus, I hope you see what a wonderful name it is. You can view it negatively. There is no other name by which you must be saved but the name of Jesus. But you can spin that around right, and see it positively there. There is a name by which you can be saved. And his name is Jesus. That's wonderful. That's extraordinary. God didn't have to send his son, but in love he sent his son to you and me that we would be saved from our sin, know our maker again and live with him and enjoy him forever. It's crazy to reject that name that can save you. You know, let's say you know, you're in the lead up to Christmas, but you get some bad news and you urgently need a heart transplant. You know, and that news hits you and your heart's failing. You've only got a matter of weeks to live. That's desperate news. But then you're told there's a heart available for you. There's a heart available for you. At today, and today it's a perfect match. It's the right blood match. It's the right size. It can give you new life. It's, it's available to you today. I mean, you'd be crazy to turn that heart down, yeah? Sorry, I don't want it today. Maybe next week. I know, actually, no. Maybe after Christmas. No, no, the new year. I've got a big party. New Year's Eve, I'll have it after then. But it's available today. You could have a new heart. You could have life. You could have life. Have it today. There's only one. See, there is a heart that can save you today. And you say, no, 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 thanks. That's a bit exclusive. Your tone, I don't like your tone. There's a way you can be saved. God's in the game of giving new hearts. You can be saved for Eternally, eternity. In the paralyzed man, you get a little temporal, small-scale hint of the world to come. And you trust in this name, in this Jesus Christ, you can be saved. There, there is a way you can be saved. There is only one. Trust him tonight. Keep trusting him tonight. Let's pray together. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you that all your promises find their yes in Jesus. Just as I've been speaking now, those, those, that great promise that uh, you gave through your prophets, uh, particularly uh, the prophet Jeremiah, that you will write your law in our hearts, you'll give us a new heart, uh, that the heart that we have, this heart of stone, you'll replace with a heart of flesh. And so, Lord God, we praise you and thank you that you've given us new hearts in Jesus. Father, we thank you for the picture that we see tonight of a church, a bunch of people, ordinary men and women, who are bold in the name of Jesus. Father, we pray that, Father, as we lead up to this time of Christmas, uh, where people are thinking about gifts and presents and family, Father, we pray that you would give us a, a boldness, eyes to see opportunities where we can speak into the lives of people with the good news of Jesus. That in him we have the greatest gift of all. That in him we can become part of your family. Where you are our father, we are your children. And Lord Father, help us to be prayerful people. To recognise, along with Samuel Chadwick, that we can do all manner of things. And the evil one is unconcerned with those. But when we pray, he trembles. So help us to be a people committed to prayer. We pray for our pre-service prayer. We pray that we would all rally together around that knowing that, Father, you are the light, the energy, the power behind all that we do. And so, Father, we pray that in all that we do and all that we've thought about tonight, that you'd be glorified, that people would come to know Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church, or to donate to the work of City Light Church, visit us online at www.citylight.church.